Thanks, everyone, for being here. We're into the final stretch of, um, of these uh, two days of excellent discussion, I think. Um, and to round it off in some style, um, I'm really pleased to, to be able to introduce Siswe and Kazan as our, as our closing plenary. Siswe is very brave to come here as a, as a, a CA by training to the actual convention, um, but we certainly are really pleased that he's taking the time um, to come. His profile is in the app, but I'm just going to, to touch on a few um, of, of, of the highlights. Um, that he started his career um, founding Seasway and Co, which actually became now one of the, the top five audit firms in the country. Um, and you'll notice there his um, illustrious career has followed him through um, Telcom, which then of course listed, and, um, and on to, to First Rand. And now he finds himself as a, a social entrepreneur. He is chairman of the National Education Collaboration um, Trust and also sitting on the boards of various uh, foundations and, um, and trusts. And um, most significantly for this discussion, he was appointed as chairman of the NSFAS in uh, August 2015, and is um, now uh, piloting a, um, a, a new program for funding higher education in South Africa. So this, of course, is really important work. And as I mentioned um, in my address this morning, I'm really proud that um, the actuarial profession is a part of this kind of um, initiative. So Siswe, thank you so much for being with us. And we really look forward to your address this afternoon. Thanks very much, Razan. I was a bit worried when I came into the previous session and, and looked at the attendance. And because, you know, not only was this room 20% full, uh, but it was also after lunch as it is now. And I've had many occasions to speak after lunch at many different functions, uh, but there's one that stands to mind, uh, you know, where I was speaking and someone was sitting in the front row and uh, they started to doze off. And not only that, they started to snore. <laughs> and I asked a person who was sitting next to that person who was snoring that, you know, can you please you know, I just sort of made a sign to wake him up uh, because it was really getting loud. So, <laughs> so he looks at me with a lot of anger and says, well, you wake him up, you put him to sleep. <laughs> so, so hopefully I have, you know, people who are awake this afternoon. Uh, thanks very much, Roseanne. Thanks for the introduction and congratulations to the Actuarial Society for this convention. Um, I'm amazed there are so many people, and I believe yesterday there were somewhere in the region about 1,500 people. So, uh, yes, uh, congratulations. Um, Roseanne has indicated, you know, since I left First Rand last year, uh, I left First Rand at the end of uh, September last year, and even though the minister announced that you know, I would be joining as chairman of the National Student Financial Aid uh, Scheme, NASFAS, um, in August, I actually went back to him and said, no, I'm, you know, I need to flush first rent out of my mind and I'm going to take a couple of months and travel the world and so on, investigate education systems because you know, I've started as a social entrepreneur. I've started a chain of schools and I've started five companies actually in the education space uh, this year including publishing, education technology, and chain of schools that we are rolling out uh, throughout the country and so on. 
And on the 6th, in fact, it was on the 6th of October, and I'm sitting somewhere overseas, uh, get a call from Blade saying, please come back, uh, because, um, you know, they, there were things going on. And uh, needless to say, um, was not popular with my wife, because I landed back here, and both of us landed back here uh, on the 12th of October, and on the 14th of October, the protests of fee, hashtag fees must fall started at VETS. Um, and, you know, I spent time with the presidential commission or the presidential task team then, which was looking at, you know, solving the problems of hashtag fees must fall one. Um, and also spent some time at NASFAS, just trying to understand what was going on uh, there. Uh, but then, like a few months later, in fact, to be exact, in November, uh, you know, I just realized that the whole funding system uh, that was used, particularly at NASFAS, was broken. And you know, it was almost like, I'm not sure, you know, I love cars, so I love cars. Uh, you know, vintage cars, new cars, I just love cars. So I watch programs that have cars in them a lot. And one of the programs I really used to enjoy was a program called Pimp My Ride. <laughs> <clears throat> so with Pimp My Ride, you, you, you know, you have this kadong, uh, you know, which then gets taken to this workshop and they put wings and big sound systems and book big wheels, you know, on these cars and then paint it in very nice livery, you know, like purple or green colors and so on. Uh, but it's still a skodong. And uh, I know it's, it may sound like a very terrible parallel to, to make, but, you know, the conclusion I reached when I just look at what Nesfos was, was not very far from Pimp My Ride. In other words, the architecture was fundamentally flawed. It was an entity which was previously um, the Tertiary Education Financial Scheme, TAFSA, which was an NGO run under the IDT, which was funding only a couple of hundred students. And in 2000, government uh, changed the uh, act and created the NASFOS Act and started pumping billions of rands into it. But the whole architecture uh, of, of NASFOS, as far as I'm concerned, was not fit for purpose and needed a complete overhaul. Uh, so that's where I started conceptualizing a new model that would uh, fund and support students and not only deal with the funding issues but also deals with all the other problems that are in that system that afflict uh, poor and missing middle students and I'll talk about it in a moment. So um, eventually, you know, wheels and government turn very slowly. Uh, in April this year, uh, the minister then appointed me as a sole chair of the ministerial task team, sole chair and member of the ministerial task team, and said, well, there was no budget in his higher education budget to do this. I said, that's fine, I'll go to the private sector and I'll get people to, to help me. So went to the banking association, to ASISA, uh, to, you know, firm of lawyers and people that I know to start working on the model. Uh, the, and the mandate was to really just look at the overhaul of the uh, financial system and support system uh, for poor and missing middle students. So we're looking at how we support these kids. We're looking at how we 
help them succeed, graduate, find employment, or play an active role in the economy. Uh, we look at you know, how we can link all stakeholders, because as we probably know, I mean, if you interact with TVET colleges or universities, uh, there are a couple of things that as a country we've done, which in fact are mistakes such as what was done when we shut the teacher training colleges, but one of those was to separate TVET colleges from uh, employers or from those companies that are actively involved in, in especially vocational programs. You know, when I was at Telcom, um, you know, we shut down a lot of our colleges where we used to train technicians and those kind of people because the idea was that the TVET colleges, which were FET colleges then, we're going to take over the responsibility of training, uh, you know, all artisan you know, pro programs. The problem with that, though, is that the curriculum in a lot of those colleges uh, has become completely disconnected to reality. In other words, we have programs that are completely theor theoretical. They're, they're not, you know, linked to what really happens in the world of work. Uh, but, you know, you also have a similar kind of situation to some degree at universities. You know, universities are very good at starting new programs. And some programs that are offered by universities have been around for many, many years. And, you know, often these days I uh, spend a lot of time attending graduation ceremonies at universities. And you have hundreds of these kids, you know, with parents that may have sold their cattle and bonded their homes to take these kids uh, to university. And you just know when they're queuing up and, you know, parents are ululating and so on, that these kids are just going to not find jobs because a lot of the problems that they do are completely irrelevant for what is required in business or what is required in the economy. Because, you know, uh, we understand that universities are not just there uh, to produce vocational students. They're there to produce knowledge, but they must produce relevant knowledge. And, you know, I've been a member of the Business Leadership South Africa um, executive for at least 13 years from my days in Telcom. And not once have we ever sat as business, and I'm talking BLSA here, which is uh, representing 85 of the largest companies in the country. And not once in that 13 years, other than now, where we're talking about helping universities complete the 2016 academic year, have we ever sat with the vice chancellors or the head of curriculums or programs at universities to talk about what the needs of the economy are. You know, it's a bit bizarre, but it's a fact. You know, it's just never happened. So what we're trying to do is to then touch on some of these issues. I mean, we can't solve all of the problems. Like, for instance, the model is not trying to solve the decolonization debate. We're not you know, that's a, another debate for other people to solve. But what we're trying to solve for is how we can uh, make sure that in line with what the constitution of the country says, we offer free education to poor students. We offer partially subsidized education to kids that come from the working class, in other words, the so-called missing middle. Uh, how we help these students progress and succeed uh, in their programs, both at universities and TVET colleges, and how we link them to the world of work if they, they want employment, and how we start a conversation in the country about the quality of the programs that are offered at higher education institutions. 
So, I mean, as we know, if you have been following the narrative or the debate or the discussion that's been taking place, the constitution in the country, in the Bill of Rights, talks about free basic education for the poor, uh, but it does not promise free education in the higher education sector. It says a state within its reasonable means must make higher education available and accessible. Okay, so obviously if you interpret that, it does mean for those people who cannot access higher education, they need to be assisted. This is where, you know, the call by students and understanding that students are not a homogenous group. You know, I spend a lot of time with students these days. Uh, a lot of students in different formations understand that when they call for free, they mean free for the poor and maybe the working class. They do not mean free for all. There's a difference clearly because when you talk to the EFF uh, student command or the PASMA, which is the PAC student wing, they want free for all. Uh, but, you know, it's quite clear what the constitution of the country says when it comes to education. So, so we've done a lot of work and there are a lot of actuaries that I've been working with, so I spend a lot of time with uh, some of uh, your colleagues uh, these days, and we've determined how much would be required. You know, depending on how much government decides um, they want to fund. And, and the numbers range from 68 billion rand if we're going to fund 90% of the students in the system. And that's a combination, that's total funding. And part of that funding includes grants and loans uh, to, you know, what we've determined as a reasonable uh, determining, just using what the minister has already decided in terms of 600,000 rand, uh, we're going to need someone in the region of between 45 and 50 billion rand uh, of funding per year to offer grants to poor students, um, covering the full cost of study, because one of the problems with the NASFOS funding formula is that we have a funding cap. So more than 50% of the universities, just sticking with universities, have uh, full cost of study, which includes registration, tuition, accommodation, books or devices, and meals, which is more than the current NASFOS cap. And that's one of the major contributions or contributors to the high dropout rate that we have at NASFOS. And there are different numbers that, you know, are bended about, about the dropout rate. Um, you know, the dropout rate NASFOS range anywhere for the first year cohorts from 70% of the students that are funded drop out. Uh, and, and that's one of the causes of the crisis that we see in the country at the moment, uh, to about an average of, say, 50% if you are very generous about completion rates and graduation rates over a certain period. If you just take a sort of a, a five-year period, a, in other words, two years over a regulator term to do a degree uh, as a period of completion. So we've done the sums and the determination, and uh, we uh, presented, we've presented to a number of uh, forums. Um, and on Monday, we're presenting to the Presidential Commission, uh, which I must say, I mean, for me, I would have made another decision in terms of uh, how you solve this problem than having the presidential commission. But, you know, uh, that's a prerogative, I guess, of the president to, to do that. Uh, so we presented to them, and the report that uh, we have uh, prepared and submitted to the minister is being issued. In fact, we presented to cabinet as well two weeks ago. Uh, is being issued for public comment probably next week. Uh, and we're going to have a period of six 
weeks uh, to gather all the comments. So, and the question is, where are we going to get the funding from? So the funding is going to come from government. Government, uh, in the medium-term expenditure framework uh, that uh, Praveen Godan delivered in October, indicated an increase, a 17 billion rand increase in the allocation of funding to NASFAS or for funding uh, poor or missing middle students. And uh, there's a lot of funding in the country. And that's the conclusion that I've come to, that you know, we don't have a problem of funding. We have a problem in terms of how funding is utilized. Uh, so if you just take government as a source of funding, you know, at NASFAS we manage funding that comes from national government departments, CETAs, provincial government departments, local government, but very often there's absolutely no coordination in terms of how that funding is allocated. Some of the funding is managed by these government entities or departments themselves with many overlaps and leakages in the process. But the same applies to the private sector. So you have NGOs, CSI programs and so on uh, that fund similar programs. You know, you have uh, so-called merit bursaries that are offered to students that really don't need the money in a lot of cases. So, and we've determined that we can actually feasibly raise uh, close to the 45 to 50 billion rand that is required. And how the funding model is going to work is that, and I'll show you in a moment, is that we'll aggregate all of the funding that comes from government and that funding will go to, sorry, just go back. Uh, that funding will go to, uh, through NASFAS, so it will be channeled through the National Student Financial Aid Scheme, or at least that's the recommendation that we have made. And then we'll collect all of the funding that comes from the private sector sources, from NGOs, uh, CSI programs, from the contributions into the broad-based black economic empowerment, uh, you know, funding that comes from the banks or retirement funds, which is looking for a return. So this is mandated funds uh, that will get returns from the loans, uh, interest on the loans that are going to be offered for those students that are going to have loans uh, and in addition to that, we're looking to uh, create a social impact bond, which particularly is going to focus on funding capacity building at universities and TVET colleges to help reduce the dropout rate. And I'll come to that in a moment in terms of, of how that reduction in, in the dropout rates is going to work. Uh, part of the significant funding that we're going to get is from the skills development contributions uh, in terms of the broad-based black economic empowerment legislation. So there was an increase late last year from 3% of payroll to 6% of payroll, which can be contributed by companies or employers uh, into the skills development fund. Okay, so we've uh, spent a lot of time with DTI as well as with the broad-based black economic empowerment commissioner, and we've agreed and there's a proposal on the table which uh, requires legislative changes to take 25% of that 6% uh, and allocate it to funding students. And I'll show you how much we hope to raise you know, out of that. And that's one area in terms of just doing the actuarial modeling where we've been working with some of the actuarial you know, consultants to help us sort of estimate how much we can raise from that source of funding. And then there'll be a lot of funding, you know, from retail investment products uh, that would be structured to institutional uh, investment products, uh, like, for instance, you know, student funding bonds uh, and other instruments that we are looking to uh, create. 
uh, that will go towards aggregating or collecting or raising funding uh, that will go towards uh, funding students. Obviously, part of this funding is looking for a commercial return. Part of the funding may be looking for a social as well as some investment return, especially as far as the DFIs uh, are concerned. So we, we're looking at all different instruments, which some of which will require registration with FSB or the new prudential regulator once that regulator is in place, uh, which may take a little bit of time because, you know, there's a, a lead time in terms of introducing new products, especially if you're going to issue them to the public. Uh, so we're looking at creating a whole range of instruments uh, that are going to help us raise uh, the uh, funding that is required. Clearly, if we have institutional investors, retirement funds, and, and so on, uh, there are certain things that you have to comply with. You know, certainly retirement funds, in fact, almost all of them, you can't invest in unrated paper or unrated instruments uh, and so on. So we're going to have to build a track record over time to be able to do this, uh, to be able to issue some of these instruments. And we have determined that if you look at it, uh, from what government is already allocating uh, in terms of the medium-term expenditure framework, uh, there's a budget of 17 billion rand in the 2017-18 year. It increases to 19 billion rand, and we have not assumed any increase in the fiscal allocation uh, to student funding. And we hope there will be some, uh, but you can see the next line, the broad-based black economic empowerment uh, contributions, which is the 25% of the 6% of payroll, uh, you know, that we can raise uh, from 2017-18 already, about 8 billion rand, which increases to about 15 billion rand by 2019-2020. So it's quite a significant uh, potential source of funding. The issue really here is to try and make it as easy as possible for companies to make that contribution. Uh, in other words, if a company writes a check, makes a contribution to funding students under this category, they will get a proof pack already, they will get a triple B certificate which gives them the points which they need uh, if they want to obviously increase their B status uh, and uh, you know will offer all the verification services which they require so that you make it easy for them to make a contribution. So we're quite positive because if you look at the skills development levy uh, and you know, understanding that this is a voluntary contribution, but the SDL, the Skills Development Levy, already raises about 15 billion rand a year. So that's why we think at one and a half percent, we should be able to raise the kind of numbers that uh, we indicate uh, on the slide here. And obviously, as I said, as far as private investments are concerned, there's a track record which we need to build. Uh, there's a track record in terms of the loan system that we're going to offer. There's a track record in terms of the financial instruments that are going to be offered uh, to investors, which we need to build over time. So we've been rather conservative in estimating the kind of funding uh, that we can raise from those sources. But over time, in about a five-year uh, period, we start to see a, an increase, a significant increase in the funding that will come from those sources. And as far as government is concerned, I mean, government still has at its dis disposal the ability to raise taxes. Like, for instance, there's been talk of graduate taxes, of wealth taxes, of even an apartheid tax. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily believe taxes achieve the objectives that you want to achieve if you are trying to raise money, because especially for corporates or even people at the upper end of income, they always find ways to 
try and, you know, within the law, uh, reduce their tax, their effective tax rate. So you may increase taxes by maybe a two percentage point or three percentage point and hoping to raise the kind of funding that we need in the country. But often you need a lot more increase to be able to uh, you know, sort of increase uh, the fiscal position that we have in the country. And we have proposed, after a lot of discussion, uh, where government was saying, no, you've got to use NASFAS uh, as an instrument, or sorry, as a platform to raise all of this funding. And we kept saying, no, you can't, because just going back to my pimp my ride analogy, there's no track record really of loan collections, of efficiencies there to be able to do it properly. Uh, so we proposed a PPP structure, which has now been adopted by government and registered by government. So how it's going to work is that all the public sector funding will flow through the National Student Financial Aid Scheme, uh, which is on your left. Uh, so funding from national government departments, from provinces, local government, CETAs and so on, will continue to flow uh, through NASFAS and will create a separate SPV for all of the private sector funding, uh, which goes into a structure called FANCO. And all the back office functions uh, that are currently managed by NASFAS will be managed by an entity which is a sort of a utility owned by the financial services sector called uh, MENCO. Uh, so the student uh, origination processes, in other words, once a student has been registered and enrolled in a university or TVET college, uh, at the same time they will obviously apply for for funding if they, are, they fall in the category of poor or working class based on the means testing process which will be done by MENCO. Uh, they will then be approved, they'll be given uh, you know, the uh, support, financial support. Uh, and we, we're going to propose, we have proposed actually to build a whole platform, a whole ecosystem that uh, tracks where the student is. In other words, uh, there are systems that will track whether the student is attending lectures, whether the student is submitting any piece of paper, an assignment, a project, writing a test, and so on, so that we can see if a student is battling or if a student is not meeting their part of the bargain. So what we're trying to encourage here is responsibility from the students as well, because we have a major problem at TVET colleges as we speak. You know, TVET colleges students, by and large, get free education. So government funds 80% of the programs that are offered by TVET colleges are subsidized by government. 20% is funded through NASFAS. But the problem is the success rates at TVET colleges are very, very low. I mean, there's a recent stats that was published by Stats SA that indicates that the graduation rates at TVET colleges are somewhere around 7%. So, because we have a lot of students who are getting money for free, there's no tracking mechanism. Obviously, there's an issue about the quality of the programs that are offered by TVET colleges as well. Uh, so, you know, we, we have to sort that issue out, especially from a responsibility uh, that a student has to comply with. So, what we're busy now developing, for instance, are contractual uh, arrangements. So, a student has to sign a contract to subject themselves to what I'm going to talk about, the wraparound support. Uh, they have to do their bit. Uh, and for students that are getting, in fact, all the students that would be in the system, we have proposed that they get involved in community service, which is really good for them as well, because they pick up skills, experience in the process of community service and make a contribution uh, to the country, especially if they are not repaying anything, if they are getting free uh, in the process.
So the way that the funding uh, formula works, and this is really just for illustration purposes, uh, so for students that are very poor, they'll get fully subsidized, full cost of study for all their years of study. And for students that come from, um, you know, sort of poor or working class backgrounds or the so-called missing middle, uh, in the initial years of study, we have recommended that they get grants because there's a high risk of dropout in your earlier years. So if you just take how NESFOS works at the moment, NESFOS works this way that when you enter university, you get a loan. That loan may be 72,000 rand if you are lucky. Often it is about somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 because there are a whole lot of problems in terms of how funding is allocated at NESFOS at the moment. And uh, so if you drop out in your first year at NESFOS, 100% of that amount that you would have received is a loan. But obviously, there's no way you're going to repay that loan because often you are an unemployed dropout. You know, so that's one of the things that the students have been protesting about, that you, know, you get a loan for something you never got if you do drop out of the system, and you're not set up to succeed. Uh, so we're changing that completely on its head to say we're going to allocate full funding for the full cost of study, more grants in the earlier years, even for those that are going to be offered loans. So the loans kick in in latter years, like when you're doing your second or third year, depending on your household income, which will be means tested, because that then reduces uh, the risk that you bear as a student, you know, in case you drop out, but also it increases the commerciality of the loan product. Uh, because if you just take, you know, Peter knows these numbers very well, and he you know, uh, the NASFAS numbers, that is, uh, because, you know, we have a nominal uh, book at NASFAS, which is about 24, 25 billion rand, as at the end of the last financial year. Uh, the fair value of that book, after convincing the Auditor General very hard that, you know, things are improving, is about 6 billion. So you can just, you know, so you can just see the difference between that. And yes, there is an amount, obviously, which uh, is converted to grants if students pass. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is just unrecoverable loans. So, I mean, we recover out of the 24 billion rand book. Last year was about 250 million rand. So you can't actually call that product a loan. It's not a loan if you're not going to recover it. Uh, so we should call it something else. So that's why, I mean, when you look at the funding formula here, there's already a lot of funding which we must just describe properly. It's a grant. Okay, and then make sure that the students are appropriately supported uh, through it. Uh, the EFC is the expected family contribution. So, you know, for people who come from working class backgrounds, it is important that they chip in, uh, you know, to the funding of their kids, you know, in the higher education sector. So that's what the EFC is all about there. And then that student who is funded through this mechanism, uh, in addition to getting the full cost of study, we'll get wraparound support in the, in the form of additional academic support, uh, psychosocial support, social support, uh, even medical support. Because very often, you know, students that are especially coming from poor backgrounds are the first ones sometimes in their village to have gone to a university. So they just don't know. I mean, you know, every year uh, you see these students, uh, if you live in Joburg, uh, because of the bureaucracy that exists at universities sometimes, um, you know, you see the students sort of land at Park Station. You know, they may have had a bus fare or a train fare to 
maybe they're going to UJ or they're going to VETS or, or even University of Pretoria and so on. They land in Johannesburg, they have no idea where to go. Uh, you know, they are sent to universities uh, without adequate preparation. You know, the basic education system is not adequately preparing them for what they're going to see. Uh, and therefore, a lot of them simply just battle to adjust. And it makes it even more complicated if they are underfunded. They have no money for food. So a lot of them live in drug-infested areas, crime-infested areas, and shacks, and so on, where the conditions for studying are just not completely inappropriate. Uh, so what we are proposing is actually to change how this whole thing works. We know that you know, at universities at the moment, uh, if you are an A student, you stay closest to the campus. In fact, you stay on campus closest to where the lecture halls are. And the poor students are the ones that stay the furthest away because they don't have the money. And I don't think, and in fact, those students who happen to be A rich students uh, can actually afford in a lot of times to stay further away. And I know this is going to be a major discussion at universities because what you're saying is, in fact, more spaces on campus need to be reserved for obviously qualifying, as in academically qualifying students that must stay closer to campus because they need a lot more support. So if you're going to offer all of this wraparound support, which is in the form of additional tutorials, additional work that they have to do to close the gap, you can't have them stay 20 kilometers away, which is often the case. So there must be ones that are actually closer to uh, where the campuses are. And, and also, they must stay in residence. If, I mean, obviously, the country only has universities that have about 20% of on-res accommodation. So the country still needs to build a whole lot of accommodation. And in fact, ASISA is involved uh, in another PPP, which is trying to increase student housing. Uh, in the country. So we're saying we need to sort out the housing situation as far as student accommodation is concerned because, you know, the conditions under which students live at the moment do not actually qualify as high education accommodation. It's worse when you go to historically black universities. So if you go to Walter Sisulu uh, or Venda or Limpopo uh, or the Northwest campus or the Mafikeng campus of Northwest or University of Zululand, those in El Forte, you know, I left Forte 36 years ago and I go to Forte University today. The accommodation is exactly as it was when I was there 36 years ago. And yet the university then was catering for 3,000 students. It now has close to 20,000 students. So, you know, you can just imagine, you know, you have universities, you go to Walter Sisuli University, it's a university that was built for 4,000 students. It now has 28,000 students. So you have lecturers who fight for lecture halls. So I've been saying to government and the minister, you know, you can't have a university where you have lectures that take place in corridors, simply because it's a first-come, first-served basis. So we've got to sort it out. Uh, and it, those universities can't be worse today than they were under the homeland system. So because, you know, for starters, they cater for the poorest. So the 28,000 students that are at Walter Sisulu University are students who can't afford to even go to Fort Hare because the fees at Walter Sula are 65,000. At Fort Hare, they're 80,000. So that 50,000 for a lot of parents is a lot of money. And yet the facilities in that universities are not what they should be. So they, you know, what we're doing here is to also have a different discussion 
uh, around the quality of facilities or education that we should be offering. So we propose to Cabinet that we want to run a pilot n uh, next year. So we are running a pilot and because we don't have time, we're using partner systems. So we're using the Tutuga Education Upliftment Fund uh, to run a pilot at a number of institutions. Uh, and uh, we're collecting money already. Uh, we only started about a month ago and we already have more than 100 million rand. We're trying to raise 200 million rand uh, to fund students uh, that are going to be in programs that I'm going to show in a moment. So the pilot is, is about, you know, checking the new structure of funding, the new architecture of funding, the contracting arrangements with students and universities, uh, how we're going to track and the building of systems, uh, you know, at the back. And uh, we, after a lot of consultation, so the minister created a reference group. The reference group includes all government departments, the South African Union of Students, uh, and we've also had SASCO, DASO. SASCO is the ANC student wing. DASO is the DA student wing. EFF and PASMA refused to participate in the process. Uh, so uh, we've been working with the University of South Africa, so all of the vice chancellors. And we came together in, um, in an agreement in terms of where the pilot was going to run. Uh, so we're going to run the pilot at seven universities and one uh, TVET college. In the programs that you see there, you'll see actuarial science, which is 2020-20 at UP, VETS, and UCT. Uh, and I was saying to Roseanne earlier, you know, we initially had 100 actuaries at each of those campuses. Uh, and maybe we should have dealt with the heads of the actuarial science programs because, you know, we were speaking with the, with the vice chancellors and the deans and they said, no, there are no... Uh, you know, sort of numbers that we had indicated in actuarial science, especially those that come from the so-called missing middle, because we're only finding the missing middle in the pilot. So we then cut the numbers back to 20. Um, but recently, one of the universities came back to said, no, that can actually manage and admit more than, you know, 20 students that come from the working class background into actuarial science. Uh, so you can see, you know, so we have engineers, we have doctors, we have pharmacists, uh, we have CAs, we have, you know, people that are doing prosthetics. Uh, we have uh, technical artisan and some humanities degrees that are in the pilot. Uh, so this is if we, the numbers that you see in the blocks are if we raise 100 million rand. So we're targeting to, to raise uh, 200 million rand, uh, most of which is going to be raised from the private sector. So uh, government, you know, is sort of going to probably put about 10 to 20 percent uh, of what we require. Uh, so, <clears throat> obviously, the actuarial numbers are low, uh, but, you know, I think if I, I look at the enrollment numbers, and we've met with the, at least with the three faculties, we have not met with the University of Stellenbosch. Uh, I think there's probably Free State that offers actuarial science as well. I'm not sure about UKZN, uh, but we've met with the um, other three sort of big actuarial science universities. And, you know, the numbers are low. And uh, one of the issues that obviously uh, the profession, your profession, needs to address is the transformation imperative. I know Timba Gamadze was probably speaking yesterday. I'm not sure exactly what he said. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a huge imperative to change the profile of the profession. And we're not suggesting that less white actuaries be trained. We're just suggesting that more black and women uh, actuaries need to be trained, uh, you know, in the country. But this does not just apply to actuarial science. It applies to engineers. Uh, it applies to a lot of other profession. 
other professions. You know, I chair the Tutuga Bursary Fund, um, which is the South African Institute of Chartered Accountants uh, Bursary Program. You know, we had a similar kind of debate a couple of years ago. And today, when you look at the new intakes, in other words, new people who are qualifying as CAs, uh, the numbers are actually almost 50-50 in terms of racial demographics. Uh, so a significant improvement has been made. In fact, when you look at the pipeline of the students that are either at universities or those that are selling articles, we now have about 60% women and 40% men, and the pipeline has increased. So I think it's something, it's a challenge that uh, your profession needs to, uh, you know, look at. As I conclude, uh, what the um, cabinet agreed to do is that we now need to do a detailed feasibility study, which we are starting actually as we speak. So we're setting up a project office uh, to do a detailed feasibility study on funding students. So tomorrow, for instance, I'm spending uh, most of tomorrow with the Assets and Liabilities branch of National Treasury, uh, presenting all the actuarial and financial models that look at scenarios of what the country can afford to determine uh, at what level in terms of calibrating, you know, grants versus loans, we should be pitching this. You know, should we start, for instance, uh, you know, at a level where everybody, every student that comes from a family that earns social grants, as a starting point, might just get free. And then we have a calibration that moves from there to the, to the minimum tax rate, to 122,000, which is a NASFAS uh, upper threshold, 250, 200,000, and so on. So we, we're doing a lot of that kind of work uh, at the moment. Uh, to be able to finish this feasibility study uh, in H1 next year, in the first half of next year, uh, because the plan is to fully implement this new funding model uh, in 2018. So we hope when the blueprint is published for public comment, hopefully next week, uh, we'll have a lot of debate and discussion in the country. And obviously, we're going to take some of the uh, inputs that are sort of valid. There are a lot of ideas out there. A lot of people think, you know, say they have plans, but there are a lot of ideas. Um, so, you know, we'll certainly welcome some of those ideas and look at them. Uh, the idea being to finalize uh, what the plan is going to be for the country uh, for implementation in 2018. There are a whole lot of legislative changes that are required. Some of them, we understand, they're not going to be changed, uh, you know, quickly. Like, for instance, you know, we've made recommendations around the changes to the NASFAS Act in terms of what the mandate should be. Uh, the changes to the SARS Act, uh, the SARS Administration Act, for instance, all the recoveries in future, the collections will be done just like the SDLs or the UIF as an automatic deduction on your income uh, once you get to a certain uh, threshold. So it will be an income contingent loan uh, that uh, you repay as you, as you earn income. Uh, we've made recommendations around changes to the Income Tax Act uh, to increase the incentives for student funding, but also make it easy uh, for companies to make contributions, whether it's through CSI programs or taking over some of the loans of students and so on, with some fringe benefits recommendations that uh, go along with it. Uh, there, are made, there are some recommendations that affect the Banks Act, uh, the Retirement Funds Act, uh, the uh, FASE Act, you know, the Triple B Act, so the whole lot of uh, different pieces of legislation 
that are going to have to be changed uh, to make it possible for us to do this. But right now, we're not, hopefully we're not wasting the crisis because you know, obviously government uh, is focused on this and therefore uh, the level of political will to change things, to change legislation and so on, which may typically take about three to five years, you know, they're looking at how they can fast track and accelerate the process uh, so that we can implement this by 2018. Thanks very much for listening. Hopefully, um, I didn't hear anyone snoring, so <laughs> doing quite well. <laughs> Thanks. <clears throat>
We certainly have significant challenges um, ahead of us as we decide how to deliver customer value and how to progress with the transformation and to keep our education relevant. And I'm really pleased that we've not shied away from dealing with these topics and that the discussion has been open and honest. The buzz I've heard in the discussions and the breaks and the sessions is that actuaries are curious and inspired to know more about and, and to give back more um, to, to, the, to the community that we work in. And this gives me confidence that this profession is going to continue to grow in numbers and also in relevance. And I think our new CPD scheme is going to be a big asset in making sure that the excellent brand that we all benefit from is maintained and enhanced. So, thanks to all of you who have been prepared, um, who have prepared papers and, and presentations. Your willingness to share is really appreciated. And I think the amazing pre presentations that we've seen have further buried the myth that actuaries are not good communicators. I know that even when you have presented previously, it is really daunting to present to an audience of your peers, and I share your pain. So, thank you also to all the international speakers who have come here and added to both the breadth and the depth of our discussions. But I must say a huge thank you to Guy Channels and the program committee. This has all been so incredible. I'm actually going to name them all, not their, not their whole names. Chris, Ray, Simon, Guy, Shas McKeeran, Rian, Michael, Vim, Norman, Mike, Evelyn, Jolene, Marguerite, and Tian. Thank you so much for all the time that you have put in in putting this amazing program together. I know that this is a really extensive process. This is not a short-term undertaking. I think the planning for the next year's convention is probably already underway. And what's more, there's the support that's provided to the authors and the presenters that goes, the value of that goes way beyond just the program that we've um, experienced uh, th over the last two days. And of course, not to mention the awesome event last night. Thank you so much for putting that together as well. And also thank you so much to the awesome team at African Agenda. They have partnered with um, ASA for a good number of years now, and it's really great that at each convention we have fresh new features that keep everyone interested and engaged. So I'd like to thank to that team for, um, for being so willing to always partner with us and to be so committed to all our, our needs and, um, and last-minute requests. And I'm pleased that the app worked really well, so thanks for that. And thanks most of all to all our sponsors as well. Your support makes all of this possible. And I've seen some great prizes have been won um, for people who've been interacting with the, um, with the exhibitors. I think um, I should have spent more time in that hall. So thanks to the sponsors for, for their support and, um, and, and for actually making the, the, whole, um, the whole process very fun. Um, I think there have been important um, conversations that have taken place over the last two days, and they certainly do need to continue. The thread of this financial inclusion debate has flowed, flown through the, a number of the sessions, um, from our opening plenary right through to the, the closing plenary now with um, CSWED's discussion. And this offers a real challenge to all of us to make sure that higher education is accessible while being mindful of the fiscal demands in our economy. And the transformation discussion, which is not always comfortable, but critically important for, to move us forward as a profession. We also have a big challenge to grapple with in terms of the range of data sources that we need to bring together and to make sense of it and to be innovative. So I've picked out one of the quotes from the activity log that I saw um, this morning um, to close with. It was, in our thought processes and our intentions are very important, especially when faced with tough decisions. So I wish you all well as you go out there with good intentions. 
So travel safe, and we'll see you very soon. And please don't travel too far. There is a linger longer function outside um, to entertain you if you don't have a flight to catch. But thank you so much for, for being with us over the last two days. Thank you. Thank you.